good morning and thank you for being here. Those of you who are online as well as those who are here in the room, we're thankful that we can worship a mighty God, amen, and sing about his praises and the wonderful work of the cross. If you would, turn in, in your Bibles or on your devices to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I'm actually going to read a little bit from 37, uh, verse 37 to 42, and then I'm going to read kind of sections uh, from there going through chapter 13 and so we'll just kind of work through uh, some of those together so just go to chapter 12 verse 37 if you're using the pew bible if you'd like to follow along in the translation that i'll be uh, preaching from it is page 57 57 is where you will want to turn into now i I'm going to do something. I don't know if I should be doing it, but I'm just going to mention it briefly. Now, I might not ever mention it again, but I just wanted to mention it specifically today uh, just because I know that there's a lot of people at home uh, who are, have both uh, contracted COVID-19 as well as been exposed to COVID-19. And so I just wanted to say, first of all, we're praying for all of you all and know that you all are at home. Uh, just as a quick count, we have eight positive cases within our church membership right now. And so uh, that's a, a big deal, uh, but praise God, it hasn't been here at church and it hasn't been an exposure here to the church. And so we're thankful for that. So I just wanna say thank you all uh, as we go through this time uh, that you continue to do what you've already been doing is that if you think you've been exposed or if you've been uh, sick, uh, or if you, your children are starting to show signs or sick, thank you for staying at home because that keeps us from continuing to worship, right? Uh, that we're being smart and wise together. Right now we have about 15 just at home uh, being wise and smart uh, because they are possibly exposed. And so, uh, so combined with, I know with uh, summer vacations and different things that we are probably missing about 40 or so people this morning uh, just for different reasons. Uh, but I just want to say that as a matter of encouragement. Uh, first of all, I want to say that you, we've all done a great job of being wise and being smart. And uh, when we've needed to mask up, we've masked up. When we've been freer to not mask up, we've done that. But you have also continued to be wise as you uh, uh, are, are coming here to church and being around other church people. Thank you. Keep doing that uh, as we move on, especially in the fall season. So continue to do that so that we can continue to worship and, and not have any outbreaks here at church. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Well, today uh, we're going to look uh, at uh, our text as we're continuing. We're almost kind of the end of where we're going in Exodus. For those of you who are new or guests or uh, haven't been here in the last few years, we actually started with the end of the story a few years ago and then kind of came back this year to the beginning of the story. And so we've almost caught up and preached through the entire book of, of Exodus. And so... Uh, as we're almost to the close of the beginning, uh, basically to the, to the Red Sea and, and uh, to uh, Israel and the wilderness, we've been looking at this wonderful, majestic might of God that the Lord in who he is and what he has done in saving Israel. And God, as we look, he saves, he strikes, he judges, he, he does all these things. And today we want to continue to see that the Lord doesn't stop when we're saved, but it continues to sanctify us. And that's what we're going to 
look at today. And I'm going to read uh, basically verse 37 to 40 right now, and then we're going to jump into some other parts of the text here in a minute. So the Israelites traveled from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families. A mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves, since it had no yeast. For when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years on that same day, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the mighty work of the Exodus that that you help us to see and know that by your hand took place. And in this, we see a mighty work, not just in saving a people, but bringing about the thread of salvation to even us through your son, Jesus Christ. That though you are saving a people in Israel, you're also preparing the way for your son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to your word today, I pray Lord, that everyone in this room and everyone watching online this morning would heed your word and be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's a curious time in the life of news. There's the Olympics being going on. Of course, all the the things that are going on in politics and different things. But who would have thought of all things to take flight and a popularity in 2021 is people admitting that they don't take baths. That's that's happening. If you've not caught up in any celebrity news lately, there are a rash of celebrities who have said that we are not bathing our kids. Uh, They're talking about how that the body is made to bathe itself and that uh, in many ways they now no longer bathe and uh, that, um, that uh, they recommend that, that people uh, just cut down on their bathing. And uh, now there's been a kind of a thing now that it's social media popularity to say, well, I'm in the non-bathing crowd or um, I'm in the bathing crowd uh, in the celebrity world. And uh, I just thought of all the things that we could be talking about, and it certainly takes the fun or excitement out of meeting a celebrity nowadays, doesn't it? Because you don't kind of know, you thought maybe a bad breath is a worry, but you might be smelling something different. The interesting thing, there's a similar debate that goes on in Christianity and in the Christian world that questions whether what happens after salvation, that do we get cleaned up and sanctified by God? Or is it okay for us to go on living the way that we're supposed, that whatever way that we want to live? There are some in the Christian world that say, just get saved. Don't worry about it. Nothing changes. Just live your life. Just Jesus' blood covers it all. Just go ahead and live the way that you want to live. It doesn't matter if you live according to the Bible or that you live according to the ways of man. Just go ahead and live because Jesus has covered it all. And then the Bible says something totally different. 
The Bible says that by grace we have been saved by faith, but that we have been created for good works. That there is a process in which God sanctifies us after our salvation. Sanctification is just a big biblical word for us to understand. God's growing us into holiness. God's growing us, taking off sin and putting on righteousness that we look more and more like Jesus. In our passage today, God helps us to see that God just does not save us to save us, but he sets us apart to live in a particular way for him. In our passage, God does exactly what he says he promises to do. He releases his people from captivity. Finally, through 10 plagues, Pharaoh relents and lets his people go. And it's even even the Egyptians are coming to Pharaoh and said, please let these people go because all the pain that is being inflicted on us, just let them go. And Pharaoh relents. And we read, ultimately, uh, in these verses that I just read, that the exodus actually happens. But as God released them, he gives them specific instructions on in how to live, how to remember this event, how to set out from this and to begin this process as a new people to live in a new way to reflect the holiness of God. In the wilderness and eventually in the promised land, God gives them laws. God gives them a way of life not just to give them a set of laws just for the sake of it, but for them to live in a way that shows that they are separate. They are unlike any other nation. They're unlike any other people of earth because they have the very presence of God, that they, have, they are the very people of God, and that they want to reflect the holy God who saved them. And in the same way, we have, who have been saved by Christ, that we have been saved, that we might follow God and to reflect his holiness and likeness of Jesus in all that we do. So in this text, as we read through the end of chapter 12 to verse 13, I want us to see three things that we observe what God does as he sanctifies his people. Number one, if you're following along uh, or writing notes, the Lord sanctifies as a mark of ownership. The Lord sanctifies as a mark of ownership. I'm going to read chapter 12, verse 43 through 51. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, this is a statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat it. But as a slave, a man may, uh, has purchased may eat it after you have circumcised him. A temporary resident or hired worker may not eat the Passover. It has to be eaten in one house. You may not take it to any meat outside of the house. You may not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. If an alien resides among you and wants to observe the Lord's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. The same law will apply to both the native and the alien who resides among you. Then all the Israelites did that did this, excuse me, they did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. On the same day, the Lord brought out Israelites out of the land of Egypt, according to their military divisions. As the people were leaving Egypt, God began to continue to set the difference between Pharaoh and Egypt and God and his people. 
Pharaoh in Egypt rejected him, rejected his commands, rejected obedience, rejected his word, rejected him as first place in his life. And what God begins to do and starts is calling Israel to do is to put him at first place in his life, in their lives, to remember God's presence is with them, to, to obey his commands, to set forth, to follow God in everything that he does. And, and it's specifically both in the direction of where they're walking, uh, where they are going, how they're to live, what they're to do. And even in this instant instruction, that he gives to give them the Passover meal for them to remember and celebrate the work of his hands. Now, many people understand this and see and look what is happening here. God is starting to mark his boundary, so to speak, around Israel. That this is my people and my people do what I say. My people love me so much that they do everything that I command them to do. And many people understand this to see that God is setting them apart as something different. And when God does this or understands this, he sets an even more specific boundary mark here, right? I mean, you can't help but read this and see how many times circumcision is mentioned in this text over and over again that you can't take a part of this unless you and your family or the males in your family have been circumcised. And this point is raised again and again to say this is a, a reminder that this is a, a celebration of my people, the people who are my own possession, those who I have made a covenant with, the, the same that I've made a covenant with Abraham, that all the world will be blessed through you, through many people, many descendants. This circumcision is then was given as a, a understanding or as a commandment to Israel that would set apart God's people for himself. Genesis 17 is where this begins and, and Abraham, uh, and th through this, uh, we see, it says in verse nine, God also said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This covenant between you and me and your offspring after you, which you are to keep every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight years old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in the household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. Now here we see that God is, sets out a physical marker of those who are the people of God. This way when God is marking his own people for his own possession, a way to distinguish them from the world. God is saying, this is the people I've made my promise to, the covenant of many descendants, of, of many blessings, of a, a, fruitful, uh, a fruitful future, of many things that will happen. I will bring a blessing to them, to all the world. And we know that to be Jesus Christ who would come to save all peoples for their sins. But it was a physical marking to show that everyone who is saying that they trust in God that they have trusted in the covenant that God has made to them, that they will are one with God. 
And I think what's interesting here, both in the text that we read in Exodus and Genesis is saying, look, this is an inclusive place. Foreigners can come and worship me. Your servants can come and worship me if they are circumcised. But it's more than just a physical marking. It's actually a metaphorical sense that it's not something just happening on the outside, but the result of something that has happened spiritually within them. You see, this is a matter of faith that these people have trusted in God and who he says and what he has promised and what he's going to do. This is a, a outward display of an inward reaction of faith to say that God has changed my heart that I'm going to follow him from now on. The text through the Old Testament shows that circumcision was not just a physical mark, but instead it was a spiritual one. Deuteronomy 36 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all of your heart and all of your soul that you will live. You see, this is the response that involves serving and following God, that it is a a response of spirituality, that we are fearing, serving, loving, obeying, holding fast to him. And the heart commitment is a necessity, not an option. God will change people's hearts so that they will love them, love him with all of their hearts. So we must be sitting there asking ourselves, the pastor, are you saying that now that through you making the argument that the the old Jewish people used to argue, the Jewish Christians would argue that we're to be circumcised to be Christians. No. The, the, The New Testament, Paul, all the writings show that that's not what the argument is. The argument is that our hearts must be changed. And blessed be to God that that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again three days later that says, now my new covenant with you is that by faith you trust in my son, Jesus Christ. All of your sins will be forgiven and that you will love me with all of your heart. I will change you through the work of the spirit that resides in you. And while you see this as an outward act It is a result of the inward expression of that they have total faith in God. In the same way that we understand our conversion by the Holy Spirit, that we understand through Him, we have been changed. We have been made new. We have been marked as God's people. That He owns us and everything that we do. That we are his, Romans 2, 28 through 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but of God. So upon receiving the Holy Spirit, we as God's people forever are God's people. 
The Bible says that the Spirit is a down payment of God for our lives. That the, because of the Spirit within us, that no one can pluck us out of His hand. There is no power in heaven, on earth, or under the earth for a person of God, a child of God, to ever be taken from God because we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. It is because of this and the spirit that resides in us, we know with assurance that when we are saved, we are God's people and we are his. And if this is true about you, as it is true about me, then God owns us. You know, cattle branding is popular. Those who have herds of cattle, we know and we've seen that they, they fire up the iron and they put the brand on the cattle to, to mark the herds and to mark the ownership of the herds. It was to, to, to really make sure that, that the poachers and other owners when uh, in other ranches wouldn't mix up cattle and, or poachers couldn't take the cattle because there was ownership marked. But brothers and sisters, we have something even better because we have been branded with the Holy Spirit, that we have the gift of God's presence in us, that not only are we branded with the ownership of God, but we have the power of God in us, that even though that we were sinners, because we are saved, we now have the power to live for God for the rest of our lives. It's not just a mark of ownership, but it's the presence of God in us to live for him, And sanctification is that process where God is growing in us to say, this one's mine. And as much praise and worship and worthiness that is owed to God for our salvation, brothers and sisters, even more that we can praise God for what he has done through us by grace and changing us. When we look at how sinful and how myopic that we are internally to ourselves and how sinful we think about life in general and all that we have done, there will be a display of his glorious grace of how he has changed us to be more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I am thankful for the work he has done in me. I praise God for the work that he has done in me. Because I know that left to my own, I would be so deep in sin and so insular and so prideful and so arrogant. But praise be to God that he saved me and he owns me and he's given me the power to grow and look more like Jesus. But in that you, maybe you are here today by God's grace to hear that it is but by faith you may trust in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit and be born again. Maybe today your most important next step towards Christ is to call out for God for salvation and trusting in Him that you would be born again. Or maybe you might need to recognize right now, say, God, I know that I'm born again, but I know that I have rejected your ownership in my life. And I need to be reminded of this gift 
that I've received and I need to obey and follow you. Today, we need to be reminded that sanctification is a reminder and a process of a mark of ownership of God over our lives. Secondly, the Lord sanctifies as a means of setting apart. And chapter 13, verse 1 through 7, I'll read that quickly. The Lord spoke to Moses, consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn of every womb among the Israelites, both male and domestic animal, it is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Nothing leaven may be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers that he would give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you must carry out this ceremony in this month. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there is a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread is to be eaten for those seven days. Nothing leavened may be found among you, and no yeast may be found among you in all the territory. So I'm going to kind of, as we talked last week quickly of how the Lord saves, quickly, I think, again, Moses, as he wrote this, kind of backed out and then kind of narrowed back in again to the Passover meal. And let me just help us to see as, as part of the process of the Passover meal that we are to eat unleavened bread, or he said that the Israelites, excuse me, were to eat unleavened bread. As we talked about last week, this was to communicate two things, that the quickness in which they left the land because there was no time for the, red, the bread to rise, But for the bread to rise, there must be leaven or there must be yeast to be added to the bread so that would happen. And we talked last week that all starter or yeast is, is basically old disgusting bread, right? So that's what I talked about. So so that gets added to the bread and it helps it, boom, it starts to rise. But what God is saying through this is he is saying, I am creating a new people. There should be nothing old brought into the new. There should be nothing that is Uh, that is uh, of the old ways brought into your new way of life. You see, God was saving a people. He didn't want a people of Israelites just to leave the land and then just to live how the Egyptians lived. He said, I am saving you out of slavery so that you might live in a new way for me as a new people. And he warned and said that you must not bring anything from the old way into the new way. This physical reminder was to show the people how serious sin is to keep it out of your way of life. And through the Passover and the many laws to come, this is what he would do to set aside his people as holy. You see, all of these were to say, you're going to live differently, be differently, live holy like I am holy. And the sanctification process is a work of God in us to make us more holy that sets us apart different from the world as we follow God. You know, the New Testament writers, and I use this same text, I kind of want to again zero in on what this meant. The New Testament writers picked this same idea up to remind us as Christians that we are not to have old leaven or evil in our lives in our new way of life. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, it says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new leavened batch, for indeed you are. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a reminder to us that we must not have the evil of our old way of life into our new way. But in context, these verses were written in 1 Corinthians by Paul as a teaching on church discipline. Now, the Corinthian church was a mess. There was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. There was the old, the the rich people were showing up to the the feast and the Lord's Supper, eating all the food before the the, the poor people were there. On and on, you read 1 Corinthians, you say this was a mess of a church. So why did God instruct his church in 1 Corinthians 5, to discipline out those who were unrepentant of sin. Because it is a reminder of a bigger picture that sin makes us look more like the world and less like Christ. And especially in the church, we have been set apart from the world to live holy as for Christ. Paul took this seriously, Christ took this seriously, God took this seriously as he was saying, look, why do you judge people on the outside of the church? They they are of no concern to you. But on the inside, oh yeah, that is a matter for family business. Why? Because Christians together have said, we believe in Jesus. And we believe his way is right. And we have been saved by grace because of him. And because of this fact, we are going to live for him. But when someone amongst the believers who say they believe in Jesus, but are living in unrepentant sin, their life is saying, I'm rejecting Jesus and living for the world. Their life says, I look more like the world than I look like Jesus. Therefore, sanctification is the process of making us holy, less like the world and more like Jesus. Therefore, when we read this, we understand the the important nature for us individually to take sin out of our lives and corporately for us to deal with sin in our midst. Therefore, it is the sanctification process that God is doing to set us not like the world, but in the world, just not of it. So that when he looks at us and we, when we look and compare ourselves to the world, we are following God and his commandments to love him, to love each other, to spread the gospel and to live like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, maybe God has you here today to warn you, encourage you, and challenge you. Stop living like the world. You have been saved by grace to live by grace for Jesus. And it's time you start acting like it. It's time that you listen to the Holy Spirit, to rely on the power of the Spirit that is in you. And not be so concerned about culture, coolness, and awareness, and and success. But instead, be more concerned about what God thinks of you. 
You know, lately it seems as though that, that we as Christians seem more and more like the world. That we binge this show because everybody at work is talking about it and we, we need to make sure that, we're, that we fit in. Though every bit of that show is contrary to the word of God that, that makes it understand that we know that this is not something that is beneficial to our soul. When do we ask the question, is what we are doing helping me live more like Christ or are we living more like the world? Of course, this arises to bigger questions within churches and cultures of, about what we understand or what we would even claim what sin is. Some churches won't even agree to this is a sin, even though God's word is very clear about whatever that is. Unfortunately, many times we have churches have negated our very voice about these big cultural issues because we can't even deal with our own sin in our own lives. My own heart is looking to see how much I look like the world, not in a matter of legalism, not in a matter to say that I'm better than anyone else, but in a pursuit of holiness. If we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then everything that we should do is to, is to love him in a way that we grow in holiness. That is our calling. That is what we must pursue. And brothers and sisters, if that is an issue, then you talk about holiness and setting aside sin. If you're cringing about even thinking about holiness, the most important question you should be asking yourself is do you have the Spirit of God? And whether you're going to even enjoy spending eternity in heaven with God. Because brothers and sisters, we're going to holiness. We're going to be around holiness. We're going to be with God. As Kevin DeYoung observes, if you, if you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with him forever? If worship doesn't capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. Brothers and sisters, we know that one day we will be cleansed from sin. But what we are, I am concerned about for myself and for us is how often we don't think or strive for holiness. We know that we're going to sin. We know that we're going to battle sin until Jesus comes again. But we may never get to a place or should never get to a place that we're not concerned about holiness in our lives. God is saving us and sanctifying us to set us apart. Don't forget that, brothers and sisters, that our holiness displays God to the world. Number three, the Lord sanctifies us as a, a memorial that we are no longer slaves. The Lord sanctifies us as a memorial that we are no longer slaves. Let me just summarize here in chapter 13. Let me just read the end, verse 14 to 16. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. 
out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused us to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of the sons. So let us be a sign to the hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hands. What do you pass down from generation to generation? Maybe it's a family recipe. Maybe it's important, important family stories. Or maybe it's the love of a particular sports team. But God gave the Passover and God gave this for every generation of Israel to speak, to proclaim, to praise and worship the hand of God who saves. The God who took them out of slavery into freedom. And by doing so, it is a memorial to them from now on that I was once in darkness and in slavery, but now I am free. Brothers and sisters, we now forever are saved as a memorial and to look to what Christ has done in the same way. That through him and by him and for him, that Christ has saved us for eternity. And now, by this, we look back and say, we were once lost and enslaved to sin, but now we have victory and we are free. Now we know that the str- whatever struggle we have in our lives, we see as post God gives us victory, that we can have victory over these sins in our lives. As Romans 6 says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and for all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. It's interesting here. Israel, it says, was about to set part on a path from Ramses to Succoth and eventually into the land that had the Hittites and Hethites and all the ites, the ites land over there. But it was going to be a, a land for God's people, flowing with milk and honey. But they were not sent on the shortest way. They were sent on the way around through the wilderness. You know, it's very fitting because in that same way, many of us, when we are saved by grace, many of us are freed very quickly from the sins of our past. But many of us face a long journey of putting sin to death. And the good hope that God gave Israel is the same that he gives us. Some of us are taking a long road That will cost a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of encouragement, and a lot of patience. We've had a lot of abiding sin, a lot of habitual sin. 
And by God's grace, he came to save us. But it is hard as we take sin off to live for God. Brothers and sisters, God is saying to you, press on. Press on and be faithful, for I am with you. Press on because I am with you. Press on, brothers and sisters, because God is at work in you through the Holy Spirit. Spirit. That sexual sin that's hard to overcome, that habitual sin of lying, the, the struggle that you, are, that you are overcoming, the overwhel- overwhelming spirit of, of not loving uh, uh, others or, or forgiving others, that long journey that you, you feel insecure about, those long journeys, hear this, God loves you and is with you. And that you will one day in heaven you will look back and remember what God did in your life through Jesus Christ. And you will see, you will praise him at the throne for how he walked with you every step of the way. You know, some of us may be struggling to sin in that sin until we get to heaven. But we will have that good news that we were never alone. And that God was with us. You know, the Passover meal was given to the Israelites that they might memorialize that event. And Christ took that memorial supper and gave it a new meaning. That at the last supper, during the Passover, that now the the bread was his body broken for us. That the cup of wine was now his blood spilt as a new covenant for us. And in this wonderful gift of the Lord's Supper that we gather together, it is a memorial for us to look back and say, look how far God has taken us. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ for what he has done and what he continues to do. Tim Chester observed, he said, this is what we do every time we take communion. It is our aid memore. It helps us to remember that in Christ we died to the reign of sin. Sin is no longer our master. We no longer obey its commands. We now live as slaves to righteousness, a slavery that is true freedom. And in communion, we remember the day of liberation that we live as God's children consecrated to him. Brothers and sisters, do you remember that day? Do you remember the day that God changed you and made you new? Do you remember when and celebrate and worship Christ for him dying on the cross, taking the wrath for your sins and being raised to life so that we might have victory over death and sin. Brothers and sisters, let us look back and celebrate. But may I ask you this? Will you teach this to your children and to their children? Will you teach them, as it was said, to teach from every generation what God has done for Israel? Will you do the same for your children and your children to teach them, look what God has done for me through Jesus Christ? Will you mentor and disciple other believers in Christ to remind them this precious gift of God and help them and encourage them and remind them, look, don't struggle, brother. Don't struggle, sister. You have the power of God in you. You can overcome this sin. I'm with you. I love you. I'm praying for you. 
Will you help others in your life group to follow the path of wisdom and guidance and holiness in, your, in their lives? And will we be a church that is patient with those who have come to Christ, who are struggling with sin, yet in the same way, encourage them to walk in holiness? See, this is a wonderful reminder as Israel was set apart that they were being sanctified to grow in holiness and to display God to the world. Brothers and sisters, you have been saved to display Christ to the world. May we strive for holiness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this word and we're thankful for this reminder in Israel's life. We're thankful that you don't just bring us out of something, but you save us to something. A life of holiness and living by grace. A life of following after you and looking more like Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that we as believers would take this seriously in our lives. And Heavenly Father, I pray as we have talked about the gospel and the promise of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for someone here or someone online as they trust you as Savior and they are born again. That they receive the Spirit that they might be saved by grace and they might live for you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.